0: In uh, John 10, 10, Jesus famously says, the thief comes to steal, kill, and destroy, but I have come that you might have life and life to the fullest. Some of you may remember from a child, I remember memorizing it in the King James Version that you might have life and life more abundantly. What does that mean? What does that mean to live life to the fullest? To experience abundant life. Does it mean a life without pain or a life without problems or a life without sorrow? Or maybe a life without loneliness or betrayal? Maybe a life without suffering? Does it mean maybe a life without being heartbroken? A life where we don't have any problems? Well, none of those can be it because Jesus experienced all of those things. Jesus tells us that as he experienced it, so will his disciples experience it. So that can't be what a full and abundant life is. Maybe it's... uh, a life of wealth. Maybe Jesus is promising us blessings that overflow in the form of wealth. Maybe he's trying to tell us as some preachers in uh, prosperity gospel believe that because we are blessed, then we are blessed with everything and, and abundant life. That sounds right. Abundant, right? That we have an abundant bank account and abundant home and abundant cars and everything we touch is blessed. Maybe that's it, right? It'd be tough to stretch it because You know, Jesus never had anything. His disciples never had anything of real value or worth. They traveled around their whole life. Matter of fact, Peter had to work. Paul had to work. Had to depend on the support of other churches so that he could go and preach. The first church had to pull their resources. Can't be wealth. Financial gain. Maybe abundant life means eternal life. Maybe, maybe he was just saying that I have come that you might have life and have life more eternal. Because, you know, that's what many Christians believe it's all about. You, you come and, and you make a one-time decision and you get baptized and you fill out a card. You get your, you know, get out of hell free card. And, and then you go back to the way you were living before, right? I mean, maybe that's what he's talking about. He's talking about heaven, abundant life, eternal life. Well, we might be talking about heaven, because the Bible's pretty clear that all of us that have accepted Jesus Christ and by grace placed our faith in him will one day, when we move from this earth to the next, be with him for eternity, and that that will be abundant that'll be full I can't imagine being in god 's presence face to face for eternity, but it seems to me that Jesus is promising something more than just this eternal life. He's promising something for the here and now. He's promising something that we can experience on a regular basis. And it's a promise for every believer in him. And so if that's the case this morning, and we have a tough time trying to define it, then, then my question to you is, are you experiencing it? When people talk about abundant living, when people talk about a full life, life to its fullest, is that the way your life is working? Because see, I think what Jesus was trying to get at, what Jesus is trying to tell us this morning, is that it's possible for every believer in him, even in this sinful, fallen, messed up world, to experience, maybe just in moments, what it was like before sin. What creation was really created for? To be in an intimate relationship with the creator, to have intimacy with him and nothing stopping that. But also to experience a life on earth the way God had it planned. To experience marriage the way God put it together. To experience relationships the way God promised to put. To experience life together in community the way God says we are called to do. That's what fullness of life is. That's what abundance is. It's a life of grace and mercy and love and forgiveness. But it's also a life of power and a life of purpose. And you see what I'm afraid is so many believers settle for so much less than what God has for us. See, there's this false narrative, especially in the North American community, that that the Bible and that Christianity is just there to try to give us a set of rules to keep us from having fun or to keep us in line. And, And that cannot be further from the truth. You see, what Jesus is talking about is abundant life. What the Bible is talking about is that he is trying to help us experience all that God has to offer in every area of our lives. To experience a full marriage, a a full friendship, what it means to live in community, to experience abundance with him. See, the Bible is not a list of rules of what not to do. It's a guide. It's there to protect us. This was written to protect us from the pitfalls and the problems of sin that always evolve. It's written to guide us and help us to experience all that God has for us, this life and life to the fullest. Is there suffering? Yes. Is there struggle? Yes. Is there pain? Yes. Is there difficulty? Yes. Yes. But it's in those times, as as we saw in that video, it's in those times that God steps up and helps us understand how life is still full. You see, it's this fullness of life that Paul has been talking about in Ephesians. This experiencing all there is with God. Because you see, if all you're getting out of your faith is a hope that one day you're going to heaven then you're missing out on the majority of what Jesus came to give us. See, Paul has told us that we have been given so much in Christ... In Ephesians, he's been telling us who we are in Christ and how God sees us and all the blessings that we've been given and all the things that God has bestowed upon us. But here in chapter 4, where we are now, he's begun to tell us that for us to begin to claim some of those promises, it requires action on our behalf. You see, you and I have to do something. You can't just come to church and say, well, I'm claiming that promise. It requires behavior on your part. You can't just come to church and sing the song and hope that it rubs off on you. You have to do something. And Paul's been explaining that. Listen how he explains it from where we've been the last couple of weeks in in verse 20. You, however, did not come to know Christ that way. Surely you heard him and were taught of him in accordance with the truth that is in Jesus. For you were taught in regards to your former way of life to put off your old self which is being corrupted by its deceitful desires and to be made new in the attitude of your mind. It starts, we've talked about it, starts in your heart. It starts in your mind. It starts with your decision making. That's where the transformation begins. And to put on a new self created to be like God in true righteousness and holiness. See what he's trying to say is for us to experience this fullness, for us to really claim this abundant life that God has for us. We have got to put off the old nature and put on the new. We have got to begin to claim the promise of who God said we can be and match up who we are in our everyday life and who God says we are. Because it's when we match those two things up that we begin to experience fullness and abundance and experience all that Christ has for us. You see, these actions, is putting on, putting off, that doesn't make us saved. Too many people think that, well, if I, if I use this as a checklist and I do this and this and this, then I will be saved. No, only Jesus can save you. But we do these things because we are saved. And you see, you can't do them. You won't be able to follow any of these things that Paul gives us in just a moment if you're not motivated from the heart to do it. Because you see, if you're trying to do it in your own power, if you're trying to do it because you think it makes you look spiritual or it makes you look good or because it's going to help you, all you're going to find is frustration, not fullness. You'll find a a set of legalistic rules and you'll never experience the freedom that God has for you. And so as we look at this, and we really started last week, Paul is giving some very practical things. Very practical things that we can actually do in our own lives to put off that old nature and put on our new nature. And these things that he's listing, and, and you know, we started last week in verse 25, and I'll read it for you. It says, therefore, each of you must put off falsehood and speak truthfully to his neighbor. We spent the whole week there last week. And he's not talking about lying, he's talking about being honest. You see the word there, that pseudo is the word in Greek. He's saying you need to put off this pretend, put off this fake mask that you wear. You got one mask you wear at church and one mask you wear at home and one mask you wear at church and one mask you wear at school. He said you got to put it down. And especially at church, we need to be genuine and open and honest and allow others to see who we are. When we hurt, we need to let people know we hurt. When we struggle, we need to let people know that we struggle so that they can come up beside us and encourage us. He says, be truthful. You want to experience abundant life, then you need to pull off all of those things that you think you're presenting that you really aren't. And be honest and be genuine. Let your yes be your yes and your no, your no is the way Jesus said it. And now Paul's about to list three other things that we can put off and put on. And and each of these three things, you could spend a whole Sunday. I I could go through, matter of fact, a couple of Sundays on each of them. And we have talked about some on before. But I'm I'm not going to do that this morning. What I'm going to do is I'm just going to kind of go through them. Because I want to get really to something that gets overlooked in this passage that I think is the key to abundant life. That I believe is the key to you experiencing fullness. These things help. The, these things are putting on and putting off. They get you to the point where you start to become more like Jesus. But these three principles that Paul slips in here that so many times get overlooked, I think are the key to helping you walk it out when you leave here this morning. So I'm going to go over... The, the put on put off stuff and hopefully the Holy Spirit if you're struggling with one of these areas he'll speak to you about it this morning. But I'm not going to spend a whole lot of time there because I really want you to see the things that I think are important and the key. And so let, let's read starting verse 26 and you've got it in your little order of service there if you're following along in your Bible. He says, In your anger, do not sin, and do not let the sun go down while you're still angry. Do not give the devil a foothold, for he who has been stealing must steal no longer, but must work, doing something useful with his hands, that he may have something to share with those in need. Verse 29, Do not let any unwholesome talk come out of your mouth, but only that which is helpful for building up others according to their needs, that it may benefit those who listen. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God, with whom you have been sealed for the day of redemption then if those three things didn't get you, it goes to this little catch-all in verse 31. And really, these are the results of anger that's left unchecked. Get rid of all bitterness, rage, anger, brawling, slander, along with every form of malice. Be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving each other, just as Christ forgave you. Now, the first one's pretty obvious. It's right there in verse 26. It jumps out. But the problem is, depending on your translation, it kind of sounds confusing. He says, in your anger. Matter of fact, in the King James, it says, be angry. In some translations, it's translated that we're supposed to be angry. So sometimes it confuses us. Is God telling us to be angry or not be angry? But he says, in your anger, do not let it become sin. Well, you see, the first thing I want you to learn to put on and put off is to put off uncontrolled anger and put on righteous indignation. Now, that sounds like a big word, but it's not really a big word. You see, the confusion Happens because there's two words for anger in the Greek language, and all we have is one word. We just have anger here. And so he uses two words for anger in verse 26, but in 27, but really they're two separate words. You see, the first word he uses there when he says, You need to be angry is a word for conviction. It is a deep-seated conviction that we have in our heart. It is a righteous indignation. It is what happens supposedly and should in our hearts when we see injustice in the world, when we see things happen that, that are not good, when we see things happen that are ungodly. It should drive us to this righteous anger. The same word used to describe what Jesus felt when he overturned the tables of the money changers. Remember when he walked into the temple and the money changers had made his house into a house of money making. And he walked in and he got angry and he overturned the tables. That was righteous indignation the same word used to describe Jesus' feelings when the Pharisees came. And remember on the Sabbath, he had healed the boy, the little boy that had the withered hand. He healed it. And the, the Pharisees came and they rebuked him because he did it on the Sabbath. And it says, Jesus got angry. That word there is righteous indignation. You see, what Paul is reminding us is you should get angry. There are times when you get angry. The problem is what we get angry about is never okay. You see, selfish anger, self-righteous anger, revenge anger is always a sin. It's never okay. It's never okay to get us get angry because we didn't get our way or something didn't happen the way that we wanted to. It's never okay for us to show ourselves in anger in an uncontrolled way. That's always a sin. That's not even what he's talking about here because it's already a given that that's wrong. See, what he is warning us about is we need to find times where our heart is stirred, when we understand the things that make God angry should make us angry. When you turn on the news and you see Christians being beheaded, it should drive you to anger. When you turn on the news and you see people whose homes and lives have been destroyed by natural disasters, it should drive you to anger. When, when you turn on the news or you hear of hungry children going to bed without food, it, it should drive you to anger, righteous indignation. But what Paul reminds us of, regardless of what type of anger it is. See, anger in and of itself is not a sin. What makes anger a sin is why we get angry and what we do with that anger. Some of you have anger issues. I can feel it. Here's the key. Paul says, regardless of what you get angry about, even if it's good anger, don't let the sun go down on your anger. Do you know what that means? That means you should never go more than one day allowing even righteous indignation to stir in your spirit. Because if you begin to allow anger a place in your heart, it turns to those things that were described in verse 31. Malice, which is wrath. Slander. You see, anger, if left unchecked, will always run out of control. Paul says you want to experience even good anger. Doesn't mean it shouldn't drive us to want to do something. Doesn't mean the next day we shouldn't still be motivated to want to see things changed because that anger motivated us, but we cannot allow it to continue to make us angry. Now, I wonder, and I'm going to move on to the next one. Let me just ask this. I wonder how many of you are still angry over something that happened yesterday? It's a sin. I wonder how many of you are still angry over something that happened a month ago, six months ago, a year ago. It's a sin and it's stirring in your heart. Paul said any uncontrolled anger, any uncontrolled, unchecked anger will always eat you from the inside out. Some of you need to learn to let it go. Put off untamed anger and put on righteous indignation. Let's look at the second one, verse 28. He says, he who has been stealing must steal no longer, but must work, doing something useful with his own hands, that he might find something or have something to share with those in need. Now, this sounds pretty cut and dry. He who is stealing must steal no longer. I mean, uh, don't steal, right? I mean, it sounds pretty easy. And, And I hope that probably most of us in this room don't have a problem with stealing. But just like he did in verse 25 when he said, don't lie, he means something much deeper than just stealing the way we think it. Because look at the context of it. It says those who are stealing must stop stealing and must begin to work, make an effort for everything that is theirs. As a pastor, I've never stolen anything in my life. Really? Let me ask you a couple of questions. Have you ever gained anything by deceiving somebody else? Stealing. Have you ever not taken care of something that was given to you to take care of? Oh, you took care of it, but just not like it you would have if it was yours, right? That's stealing. Have you ever failed to return something that you borrowed? Stealing. Have you ever cheated? Taxes, class, school, reading. It all counts. Have you ever been paid a fool's day for work and not worked a fool's day work? You ever paid with your boss or the person that supervises you expecting you to work this much, but you only worked this much because you got distracted or you did something else? You say, Pastor, how can that be stealing? That's the very example he gives. It's robbing. Here's a hard one. Have you ever kept something that belonged to God? That God told you to give to somebody else or to Him? Here's even harder that we learned last week. Are you using your spiritual gifts to minister or to minister in the ministry somewhere? Because we learned last week that if you're not using the gifts that God gave you for others, then you're robbing them, you're stealing them of the experience of your ministry. See, it's a lot deeper than just don't steal. I call this to move from slacker to sharing. Because see, we've gotten this idea in, in our world, our culture has told us that it's all about getting whatever you want with the least possible output. Jesus and God says, no, that's not my kingdom. Here's an even harder one. All the while I was talking, you were trying to rationalize what you did on that list wasn't really stealing. See, we've got to get beyond this idea that it's mine and recognize that everything in this world is God's. And Paul tells us in Philippians that everything I do, whether I work or I eat or I sleep, I do it for His glory and His kingdom. You see, when you show up at work, it's not so you can get a paycheck. It's to give Him glory. It doesn't matter what your work is. And through the effort that you put forth, that glorifies Him. You say, well, nobody in my office is paying attention. You don't know who's paying attention. But I know one person who is, the Creator It's been said, happiness is not so much as having as it is sharing. We make a living by what we get, but we make a life by what we give. He says, put off anger, put off stealing. And then the third one, which is probably the most famous verse from chapter 4, verse 29. Do not let any unwholesome talk come out of your mouth, but only that which is helpful for building up others according to their needs, that it may benefit all who listen. That's probably the most quoted, least used verse in the book of Ephesians. Because if this verse was used, there would be so much more peace and quiet, less talk, less drama, and probably a lot less pain. I don't have to explain it. Don't let any unwholesome talk. The word there is actually coarse. The word in the Greek is a word that describes something that is rotten. Used to describe like rotten fruit. He says, don't let anything that brings death, that is rotten, come out of your mouth. But only that which brings life, which is uplifting. You want to experience fullness of life? You get rid of your anger. You begin to trust that God is in control and give him everything that you can. Why? So that you can share and give it to others. And then you get rid of unwholesome talk. Get rid of words that manipulate others. Words that manipulate even through flattery. Get rid of words that are coarse, words that are cursing. See, our language today has become such that it doesn't even shock us anymore. It's amazing to me when I go around my kids to the high school, go and be around high school students at a football game or basketball. I mean, the words that they use, and it doesn't even bother them. And even at the middle school, and you have to understand, if they're using those there, then they're using them other places had a preacher early on always told me, how can you determine what's coarse? And coarse means not not appropriate. How can you tell what's coarse language or what's curse words? He said, use the grandma test. If it's not something you would say around your grandma, then you probably shouldn't be saying it around your friends. If you'd be embarrassed to go tell that joke to your grandmother, then you probably don't need to tell that joke. If you'd be embarrassed using those words with your grandma sitting next to you, then you probably shouldn't be using those words. He says, put off all unwholesome talk. Words that wound, words that hurt, those careless words, you know what I'm talking about, those things that we lose our temper and say, and once they're out there, we wish we could grab them back, but we can't because the hurt's already there. You say, how can you stop that? Tame your tongue, James says. Gossip. See, what he's telling us is our words should be encouraging and intentional and healing. They should bring life. They should always bring restoration to people. That when we speak into people's lives, we need to make sure that we are speaking life, not rottenness. See, experiencing this fullness of life, all of these things, these three things, really four with last week, they all deal with our day-to-day interaction with others, those at church and those at home and those in society. And all of them, for you to want to change, you can't just say, I'm going to watch my language. You can't just say, I'm going to stop stealing and show up at work and work hard all week. Or this week, I'm going to practice sharing. Or "Or this week, I'm going to try to be more genuine. Because you see, if you try that, you're trying to change from the outside in. And that just gets frustrating. But this morning, if you're honest with the Holy Spirit and you said, God, I need to change, I want to experience fullness, I want to experience abundance, then I promise you the Holy Spirit will begin to prick your heart and convict your heart when those coarse words come out, when you begin to slack off, when you begin to not share, when you begin to lie, when you begin to steal. Those things become evident in your spirit because the Holy Spirit begins to speak to you. Then Paul adds that little catch-all at the end that we need to trade all of those vices for virtue. Really, I said before, that's anger unleashed. But you see, I I think what Paul wants us to see, and, and I'm almost done, is so much more than a list just to check off. Just to put on and off. Just, you know, we do that sometimes with the armor of God and we're going to talk about that later. And I used to have teenagers in my student ministry and college ministry that had a list and they would go and check off. You know, I'm putting on the belt of peace and putting on the shoes and, you know, they would go through all those things. And sometimes those things help us. But Christianity is more than a list of, of ten do's and two don'ts. See, it's much deeper and it has so much more depth. And sometimes we just take that to the base common denominator and people leave with their notes from Sunday and it's got, I need to do these three things. Don't lie, don't steal, don't cheat, right? It's so much more than that. And what Paul is saying here is don't get lost in those things. Recognize that they're there. Let the Holy Spirit speak to your heart. But there's three things that he mentioned that we kind of looked over that I think are more important than any of those things. And I think they'll help you experience fullness of life. If you go back up and you look in verse 27, he just kind of throws it in there when he's talking about anger. He says, do not give the devil a foothold. And while he's talking about unreserved anger here, that truth is true for any unrepented sin. Any sin that you've allowed to linger in your life, any sin that you've allowed to uh, rationalize or justify, that you still allow a place in your heart, the Bible says you're giving the devil a foothold. The word there for foothold is the Greek word topo, which is where we get topography. It's a beachfront. You see, when you allow sin to linger in your life, whether it's anger or lust or bitterness or hatred or whatever it is, greed, envy, strife, whatever it is that you allow in your life that you don't deal with, what you're doing is you're giving the devil a beachhead in your spirit so that he can go and attack other things. You're allowing him to come back in and steal what Jesus Christ already paid for. You're allowing him to come back into your life and take back over something that's not his. You're giving him a foothold. So the question you need to ask yourself, no matter what it is that you're doing, it's not what would Jesus do. We know what Jesus did. The question you need to ask yourself, is this behavior, are these words, is this action, is it giving the devil a beachhead in my spirit? It feels so good not to forgive. It feels so good to hold a grudge. feels so good to be right and want them to know that I'm right. But in doing that, am I giving the devil a foothold in my heart? Because if so, it's not worth it. And the second truth that jumps out is from verse 30, and I read it a little. He says, he's talking about a wholesome talk, but this relates to everything as well. Do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God, with whom you have been sealed for the day of redemption. See, we need to remember that the Holy Spirit, and we've already talked about the difference between a home and a house. The Holy Spirit is inside of you. He is your source of strength and power and conviction. And the word there, grieve, I've always wondered, what does it mean to grieve the Holy Spirit? Well, I went back and tried to look up what the Greek word means. And the best definition that I could find was heartbroken. The Message Bible puts it this way. Don't grieve God, don't break His heart. For his Holy Spirit moving and breathing in you is the most intimate part of your life, making you fit for himself. Don't take such a gift for granted. You see, you grieve the Holy Spirit when you don't recognize that he's in charge. And when you break the Holy Spirit's heart, just like when you break a person's heart, it robs you of your intimacy, steals your joy. The Holy Spirit is the source of our power. The Holy Spirit is the one who gives us the ability to change. And when you grieve him, when you break his heart, it makes it all that more difficult to change. So ask yourself, does this give the devil a foothold? Does this break God's heart? Because you see what breaks God's heart should break our hearts. Does this grieve the Holy Spirit? So really there's two don'ts. If you're keeping up, making notes, two don'ts. Don't give the devil a foothold. Don't grieve the Holy Spirit. And then the last thing. This is not just a catch-all. It is the underflowing current through everything. And that's in verse 32. Be kind and compassionate with one another, forgiving each other just as Christ forgave you. Two don'ts and a do. What do we do? Forgive, forgive, and forgive. See, the roots of most of our issues and most of our problems is unforgiveness. Yes, we're supposed to treat people with kindness and compassion instead of malice and bitter and angerness. But he said more important than that, you need to recognize that for your heart to be empowered, for you to experience abundant life, your heart needs to experience forgiveness. And you need to forgive those that hurt you. You need to forgive those, maybe it's even yourself, that you've been holding a grudge for. Because if you've been holding on to anger, I promise you, you've been holding on to unforgiveness. You've been robbing somebody. If you, all those things I used to describe, I promise you it's an issue of unforgiveness. Unwholesome talk coming out of your mouth, I promise you it's, a, it's you not recognizing that you're forgiven and you've got to forgive others. How often do we forgive? Paul made it even more difficult. He didn't just didn't say forgive. He said forgive the same way God forgave you. How much does God forgive you? All the time. Every time. See, if you want to experience abundant life, yes, you need to put off and you need to put on. But it's more than just some spiritual concept. It's a reality to walk in every day. But it requires you doing something. It requires you stepping up and claiming that promise. I was watching an interview this week the families of some of those that have been killed in syria iraq by isis i saw one of the interviews with the family of one of the young men the coptic christians from egypt that were killed on the beach in that video in libya and i don't recommend you watch it if you haven't seen it but i will tell you that something that the national media did not tell you and did not show you is almost every one of those 20 men that were on the beach before they were reheaded, said something like, Jesus is Lord, or Jesus is my Lord. But I was watching this interview of one of those young men's families. And his mother was sitting there, and she was holding up a picture of him. She was weeping, as you probably could imagine. But I noticed their surroundings. She was in a... Uh, old tent that was just basically falling apart and it was holding around her probably every item that their whole family owned. They were refugees and it was stacked and, and it was cluttered and I noticed that the clothes that she had on were, were frayed and, and they were uh, all faded out from being in the sun and you could tell by looking at her by the lines in her face and by how much she had aged that she had lived a hard, hard life. There wasn't anything about that picture and watching that interview that made me think abundant. But then she was asked, if you could say one thing to those men that killed your son, what would you say? She said, I would tell them that Jesus is the Christ and that he will forgive them and love them if they ask as I watched that I thought she gets it she experiences abundant life more than many of us ever will in our affluent society because you see the fullness of life that Jesus was promising was so much more than what you see who you are and it can be yours if you claim it let's pray